Bible salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. What's going on, everybody? Hope you all are doing good. I had an excellent weekend out in the East Coast with family. I went, uh, did a little body surfing and, and saw a lot of wildlife out there. I managed to keep myself sunburn free since I'm getting my new tattoo uh, in a couple of days. Well, it's, it's, I'm getting just the outline done, but you guys know how it is. It's going to be a pretty detailed piece, and I can't wait to get that started. But I needed to wear a water shirt all weekend so that I didn't get any burns on my body at all. Because every time I put on the sunscreen, it just it doesn't matter. I'm in the water a couple times, and then it's all of a sudden it's gone, and then I look like a lobster out there. But, but anyway... Very excited to be back behind the microphone. I got a wonderful interview upcoming on this particular episode. I interviewed Chris Round, Christopher Round. He is a Sandan under Jimmy Pedro, and he is also a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu purple belt under Dr. Radiv Ferguson. And he has an interesting story about being an elite athlete but just missing the cut of trying to make the Olympic team. And if you're not aware, I'm sure many of you have heard of Chris Round. He's publishing his story on Medium.com. And Medium.com is one of those sites where aspiring writers and and bloggers and such put their material out there for for people to read and and with the hopes of maybe one day you get a maybe some kind of a book deal or something along those lines. But I want to share – well, I'm not going to share his story – He's going to share his story, and I'm going to be playing that interview momentarily. But I would be remiss if I did not talk about the huge news that came out last week. If you guys are not aware, Judo was awarded, and I got this from JudoInside.com, a very reliable source for Judo news. You guys got to check it out. Hans Van Essen does a wonderful job with that site, and I trust him. Above everybody else when it comes to news related to judo. So I read this on judoinside.com. Judo was awarded a new event for the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. There's going to be a mixed team event for judo. Now, what does that mean? Well, for starters, that means that there's going to be an extra day of judo. But secondly, in my opinion, this means that all the rule changes that the IJF has done over the past few years... It's worked, and it's really interesting to me to see the the IOC award judo another day and a new event that's related to judo because, look, I've talked about this before in episodes past that the IOC really brought down the hammer on the IJF, and they said, look, clean up your sport or, or, or you're going to be out of the Olympics, so... Judo did, and that that largely represented the cleaning up of the sport was largely the leg grabs, and that's gone away, and Judo, as a spectator, has become a lot more exciting to see. Now, look, I'm not looking to debate the leg grab ban on this particular episode. I've done that before. I'm sure we'll revisit it again sometime in the future, but getting rid of the leg grabs worked, and they've been awarded a new event and it's I think it's fantastic. I, I I this is just huge if you guys aren't aware of how big this is. This is I, I just it's unbelievable to me, quite frankly. So 
this is going to be some of the details here. I'm getting this from judoinside.com. One extra day of judo following seven days of individual action across 14 weight categories. We'll see three teams of male judoka, under 73, under 90, and, and over 90 kilos, and three female judoka, which is under 57 kilos, under 70 kilos, and over 70 kilos, join forces to bid to become the inaugural Olympic judo team champions. Athletes will come from the individual competition and the format will be a quarterfinal repercharge with the four best teams seated. The schedule will see the final block composed of the medal contest only, all taking place on one mat. A minimum of 12 teams will be expected to take part in this exciting format. Each team will be made up of athletes who qualify for the individual competition, taking into consideration their world ranking points for individual Olympic Games qualification. So that sounds to me that there's not going to be some kind of a separate qualification process. So this sounds to me that you're going to get the best of the best making up these teams. So I'm very excited to see this, and I'm glad that they're going to be able to fit this in in the next Olympic cycle. This, I am curious to find out. Maybe maybe I'll ping my buddy uh, Marius Weiser on the IJF. Um, I'm curious to find out if they introduced the new rules for the teams and the four minutes, if they already had an idea if the Olympics were going to go this route and they just held off on an official announcement. But... They made sure I talked about this months ago that that the rule changes for 2017 heading into this Olympic cycle where they brought down the men's matches from five minutes to four minutes. I at first I wasn't I, I knew why they did it. They explained it. They wanted a, a more uniform thing. And I knew that the IJF was going to go the route of of teams. But I'm curious to find out if they knew about this before they made the 2017 rule changes. And and I'm serious. I'm going to I'm going to email Marius Pfizer. I probably won't get a response for about 2 months, but I know he'll respond to me because he's responded to me before, and I'm sure he'll be very honest. And I'll let him know who I am and stuff. He he should know who I am. Come on. I mean, you guys know who I am. You guys found me. If you guys can find me, I'm sure the president of the IGF can find me. Anyway, enough of that. Over the past few days, I've received a bunch of email. I even got a a, a voicemail message, which I absolutely love. I'm going to hold off on that for next week's episode where it's going to be more of, it's not going to be an interview episode. I really want to get to this interview. But before I do that, I want to talk about my friends, Nick and Cy Collier, who are the stars of the Nick and Cy show on YouTube. Now, for those you don't know, Nick and Cy has been one of my favorite YouTube channels to watch over the past several years. And I'm not saying that just because they're sponsoring the show. Nick and Cy Collier have been creating judo videos, Brazilian jiu-jitsu videos, self-defense type videos, and stunt videos for a number of years now. They've also compete nationally in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and they do quite well. If you take a look at their videos online, they, they, they seem to win a lot. That's for sure. They seem very well trained as well. It's a very entertaining channel. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the John Wick movies, Nick and Cy are sponsored by 8711 Action Design Studios, which is the production company that brought to you that brought you the John Wick movies. So do yourself a favor. Go to www.youtube.com forward slash Nick and Cy and check out their channel. I'm sure you'll love it. 
Check them out. And while you're at it, go ahead and check out my channel. Just search on Judo Chopsui. All right. I'd like to bring on my next guest. His name is Christopher Round. And like I said before, he's a Sandan from Jimmy Pedro and a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Purple Belt from Dr. Radi Ferguson. Chris Round. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited about this interview. Um, you approached this uh, this idea to me a, a couple of weeks ago, and I was I, I I was just wanted to hear your story. I've been reading your story on Medium, um, and, and I I'm, I'm loving it so far. So before we get into some of your story and and your your uh, Experiences in judo in the United States and traveling abroad and such. Tell the listeners about yourself. Things like uh, when you started judo, who your judo coach is, and and even include, if you'd like, uh, what you do professionally these days. Sure. So I started judo about I started judo on July thirtieth, two thousand one. So I was about twelve years old. Um, and my coach is Jimmy Pedro, and his father Jim Pedro Senior. Um, okay. I- and almost the entirety of my um, elite athletic career, almost my entirety of time in judo was spent um, with Jimmy. Hey, so I only I only left that dojo, um, you know, not in spirit, but um, in 2013 when I went to grad school. Understood. Understood. And and what do you do uh, professionally? I'm a little bit familiar with your background, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So. Um, my technical title is I'm a data scientist for Booz Allen Hamilton. What I actually am is I'm effectively an environmental scientist and policy analyst. Um, my specialties are climate change impacts um, and stuff around water supply. I, and I also have a strong background in conservation biology. But I'm essentially the go-to tree hugger um, when, a te- when a team needs somebody to talk about the environment. Interesting, interesting. And and you you stated earlier that you are currently – Living in Virginia, do I get that right? Yep, um, I live uh, I, I live in Northern Virginia. I do a lot of work in D.C. I consult with federal agencies, um, and I'll consult with you know different groups. I've done some international consulting as well. Um, I worked with I did some light stuff with Dubai um, as part of my graduate work. I did some consulting with a company in India, so it's been fun. Excellent, excellent. Now you said that your your uh, your coach is, is Jimmy Pedro, and but you're no longer obviously for obvious reasons you're no longer training there. Do you still get out on the mats from time to time? I, I would think that with your your schedule and your career that may take away from time to to train at all. I I'm one of those people who I have to be on the mat um, to like just kind of function. So I actually I do a lot of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I train um, at fifty fifty martial arts with Ryan Hall now. Um, and then I actually get on the mat at Georgetown and, and whenever I go home, um, I actually, I make an effort to, um, kind of do the rounds and see, and see people at different dojos. I was home about a month ago and I stopped by Jimmy's. So. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about training at Jimmy Pedro's. I, I've, I've known people that have trained there. My my own judo coach used to train there as well. I don't know if you're familiar with the Middendorf family. I, you they may have left by the time you had already started judo. I'm not sure if you know them, but they were my uh, primary training partners for years. Oh, I know Taylor. I know Taylor well, um, and I knew Dave. You did know Dave. Okay, I, are you aware of of what happened to Dave? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, big, big loss for all of us down here because Dave uh, had a huge impact in my life personally and, and on and off the mats. And, uh, and, and, and Tay is somebody, when I talk about my favorite training partner of all time, I'm talking about her. They were, I knew, I spent a lot of time around them when I was a teenager, um, particularly Taylor. Or, um, I used to train at Jason Morris's place in the summer. So, oh. I, yeah, so I used to see Taylor, um, you see Taylor out there. Or, so, no, I, I think the world of that family, they're really great. Yeah, they, they are. They are. I, I had my, my best years in judo have, have would always involved them. So, well, that, that's great to hear. It's, in, it's interesting. I wasn't sure if you knew them, but, uh, yeah, it's great, great to hear that, that, uh, you know, we have, uh, mutual acquaintances for sure. So I am, uh, I have read all of your chapters on, um, so you have been doing what I would classify as a book project. Um, yes. and you're doing a story on medium.com. Tell me, Tell me a little bit about that and what is your what was your primary motivation for starting this this book project on medium.com? Well, it was done for two reasons. I chose to go that route for two reasons. One was I thought that if I regularly produced a blog type situation that I could get a following to it. And then if I were to try to go to publish it, I could make a point saying, listen, I have people who read this, like this, you know, there's a bit of a following. And the other is actually just kind of an accountability thing. Um, you know, I tried for about a year just to write this in my spare time, you know, sit down, write in Microsoft Word, put it in a Google Drive folder. And it just wasn't as fun. Um, I, you know, it's fun to have people actually read your work on a regular basis. I thought I could get, as I put it up on Medium, I could get input, I could get people's thoughts. Um, and really what kicked that off was, and it's actually, I haven't listened to Epilogue, but um, there was an essay I wrote called "Ending an Ending an, an Elite Athletic Career While on the Spectrum," and I put that up, and that actually took off pretty well. Um, it's actually the best performing of any post I put up on there. And I thought, you know what? I enjoyed interacting with people about this. I think it would be fun just to put the entire project up and try to the best I can each week put up another chapter. Right, right. Now you just you just stated um, talking about being on the spectrum. Are are you are you willing to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I am I'm high functioning, um, very high functioning. Um, I had was basically a pseudo Asperger's diagnosis um, when I was about ten or eleven years old. Um, the way a lot of this meant, you know, as I say in the article. Um, you know, what probably tipped them off was I spent about 10 hours talking about different types of skinks, which is a type of lizard. Uh-huh. I was very interested in reptiles at the time, still am. Um, but what ended up happening was I got, I was getting support. I was doing occupational therapy and um, working on different things. My handwriting was virtually illegible for a very long time. Um, so I actually became very good at typing, thankfully. Um, but and this actually leads into judo. So my parents had always had the intention that my brother and I would at least try it. My dad had actually trained her, Jimmy Pedro senior. Um, he has his brown belt under him. And they actually thought I found, I originally thought they had kind of just run out of ideas and had said, all right, well, Chris might, we might as well try throwing Chris in judo. 
And then actually when I published that essay, my mother and I were chatting. She said, actually, no, we, we were going to push you in judo at some point, but we thought we'd wait till your brother was old enough because we thought he was the one who'd really like it. So, um, and Jeff did it for a few years, just my little brother. And he's come back to it as an adult, but it, it wasn't quite his um, cup of coffee. Sure. Um, but what ended up happening was being on the spectrum, you can latch on to special interests. Um, you can become very hyper-focused around that. And almost instantly, that part of my brain clicked with judo, and it became the only thing I could think about. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm sitting, in, I have to watch myself because I'm sitting in meetings and start getting a little bored. I'll find my, myself writing, um, writing flow charts for different right. stuff like that. Now, how has um, judo helped you personally in terms of being on the spectrum? So there are two areas, and one of them I'll probably get into a bit more when we talk about the book because it leads to um, when I eventually found my ceiling as an athlete. Um, but from a social perspective, it really is very useful in socialization. Um, I have a very two of my really dear friends actually kind of I got. I got up to a certain point where I had therapy in terms of like understanding what different faces meant and understanding some basic social cues and what kind of let me make the final jump where I could basically pass. And so most people wouldn't be able to realize I was on the spectrum was actually, I had some very good friends in judo. Um, My friends, George and Kayla were very, very patient with me when I was about 18 or 19 years old and kind of helping me polish that part of my personality off. Um, and figuring out some, you know, final bits of social norms I hadn't quite figured out. Um, for people who aren't aware, a lot of times what happens with people who are high functioning on the spectrum is there's a lot of intuitive things around social norms and, um, reading body language that most people have that aren't intuitive for people on the spectrum. So like my mother, when I was a kid had to, you know, really spend time explaining what different basic facial expressions meant because it just was totally blank to me. I didn't know how to react. Um, so from a social perspective, judo was fantastic. Um, now it's, and actually Jimmy brings up this story all the time um, to give an idea of where I was coming from physically. There usually tends to be a lot of problems with the gross and fine motor control people on the spectrum. And my first judo practice, we started jogging in circles, many judo practices start. And I did not have enough gross motor coordination to turn while jogging in time. And I ran straight into a wall, um, put my <laughs> knees on the wall. So um, it's that, so that's kind of where I started from. And within a couple of years, I had actually, it, basically judo can be occupational therapy on steroids. And within a couple of years, I was performing at or greater than my, what would be expected for my age. And then about halfway through high school, I got to the point where I was competing at a high junior national level. Um, and that was the point where I, I'd really kind of gone weight. Judo had really not just, not a race, because there were still issues, and I'll talk about that later. But um, judo allowed me to come much further along than I think I would have come along had I just been doing occupational therapy. And I'll note that this was a specific case to me. If anyone's listening to this and they have a kid on the spectrum, um, you know, follow whatever your therapists are saying, whatever your doctors are saying. Um, I'm kind of a unique case, but judo really helped me. That's fascinating. I I do have uh, I do have a friend that has a child on the spectrum, and 
you know, I, I know he listens to this podcast on occasion. He's not, he's actually not a judoka. I've got, I've got a few people that listen who don't do judo, but, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I be, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because you may, I'm not saying that he should put his child in judo because again, every, like you just said, every case is different, but, but it's, it, it's certainly an option out there. And I think it's, um, I, I think that's great. Um, and I appreciate you sharing uh, your story here in terms of being on the spectrum. It's fascinating stuff. So I've been reading your story on Medium. I love it. Uh, I love it so far anyway, and I can't wait to you. And, and I didn't just read this recently. I've been reading it as you've been posting this and sharing it on Reddit. So I would like to talk to you a little bit about some of your experiences, the ones that you've written so far, and some of the chapter headings that have yet to come. I don't, I don't want you to spill the beans on everything, but I think there are some talking points there that I'd love to hear about at a high level. So in your story, you talk about going to Japan and flying out to a training camp held at Tsukuba University. I'm curious to know, how did you hear about this particular university and this training camp? And why did you choose that place versus versus, uh, potentially other training camps? So... Jimmy has a great relationship with a lot of places in Japan. Um, and I had, I had gone to him and say, you know, I'd like, it's time. I think I, I need to spend some time in Japan. Um, and, just, and he gave me the option of Tokai or Scuba. And I had friends who have been to both. And it was under the advisement of a good friend of mine to try to go to Scuba first. Um, and maybe Tokai later. Um, just, he said, cause he had been there relatively recently and he said that the group at scuba at the time was kind of a little friendlier. Um, and that, you know, and Tokai is of course a really badass place to train. Um, and both places are fantastic. There were also, um, some of the athletes that were at scuba at the time were people I was kind of interested in getting my hands on and training with. Um, so that was, it was more just, you know, a, um, tip from a friend that I would pick scuba over Tokai. Right, right. Now, these the 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 people that you train with at this university, were they part of the Japanese national team? Were were, were these guys also people that were looking to get to the Olympics themselves? Yeah, so you had when I was there and you know, there might be some names I don't remember, um but the two big people I was, I tried to spend a lot of time with were Nishiyama and Ono and Ono. Some people may be familiar with him in 2010. He was on an absolute roll and was winning every major um, tournament he entered uh, right up into the worlds when actually Iliadis took him out. Um, That was the year I believe Iliadis and Iliadis beat Nishiyama in the final. Um, it should be noted that this wasn't the Nishiyama that ended up going on to represent the U.S., not the U.S., to go on to represent Japan in the Olympics. Um, I see. Japan was actually had a very deep pool. They had um, three or four people at 90s for, in 2012 who all could have threatened for a medal. Um, and then some people, like people who remember judo in like the mid-2000s would be familiar with Ono particularly. Um, he was... He fought for a while at middleweight. Um, he fought for a long time at 90 kilograms. And then at 73 kilos, there was Awano. Awano took bronze at the 2010 Worlds. 
Um, so there were several gold medalists who were there. Um, and then there are a lot of people. Japan's one of those places where you show up and the guy who looks like he just does this for fun on the side and just enjoys being an extra training partner could walk out and threaten to win, if not win nationals um, against A-level people. Japan is just so deep in terms of good judo players. And not just it's not just they're good, because you can go a lot of places and find people who are solid, but incredibly technical judo players. And that was something I felt like I really needed to improve in my game. I needed to try to improve my ability to throw people. Um, I was always a very good grip fighter um, coming from Jimmy's camp. But I kind of felt like I wanted to spend some time just developing timing and stuff like that. And while you can develop that anywhere, I also have this long-time fascination with Japan. So I was like, you know what? I think it's time to go over there and try to learn, try to learn this part of the game. So in, in, to, to springboard off of those comments, now I, as I'm just your local grassroots recreational level player, and I understand the importance of visiting different clubs to train with different people, you get different you know, ideas and such. What are the similarities and differences of training, of doing that kind of stuff with people at an elite level? So I, I guess that's a long way for you to go to, to get that. So what were you hoping to gain out of that trip, uh, apart from desiring to, to visit Japan and, and you know, the uh, and see that culture? What were you hoping to gain out of that trip? And what are some of the similarities and differences with training with people at, at such a high level? So I've been on the cusp of being a top tier player nationally. At least that was what I had felt at the time. Um, I'd had some good results in the past two years at the senior level. Um, I felt like I kind of felt like I just needed this extra bump to finally get up into the top five. Um, and start to be able to challenge for some international teams and stuff like that. So that was kind of what I went to Japan for was I was trying, I was trying to make the world team in 2010. And back then the way the rules worked was if you won, they sent two people per weight class. And if you won senior nationals, you could challenge, I think whoever was the number two person um, for the slot, I believe the number one person was guaranteed a chance to go. Um, so you could win if you won a best two out of three, you could go on and fight the world team. Uh, and that was kind of that was kind of my key strategy to try to make to try to make the Olympic team in London because I was fighting off with yeah, number one guy in my weight class was Travis Stevens. And I'll note the rivalry between Travis and I was that of a hammer and a nail. Um, it wasn't really so much of a rivalry as I would show up to practice and he kicked my ass. Um, <laughs> but but I should note that um anyone going trying to make an Olympic team, there has to be not, I wouldn't necessarily call it lying to yourself, but um, there has to be kind of a suspension of reality in your brain because it's such a a massive task you're attempting um, that, you know, real being realistic, it doesn't help. (laughs) So, so how, um, how are you able to fund yourself uh, when it comes to that, when it came to this particular trip and, and other types of trips that you've taken around the world for judo? Um, my family. Your family? Uh, I had a family member who um, really, when, I don't want to talk too much about this, but I had a family member who um, stepped up and was kind of out of the blue, said, you know, I want to help you try to make an Olympic team and follow this dream. And they covered all of my costs for four years. Okay. All right. That that's great. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, 
so you had family helping you um, for your uh, your your traveling expenses to go abroad and and try, attempt to make this Olympic team. How how does USA Judo fit, or how did USA Judo fit in the grand scheme of things in terms of athlete funding for you? I don't think I ever got any money directly from USA Judo, and. And in fairness, I was consistently top eight, but I wasn't a B or A level player. So I didn't have too many opportunities where real USA Judo money would have come to me. Um, I attended training camps and went to events that USA Judo paid for. Um, but I was never someone who was impacted by the funding cycle. Um, I was never on that list. And I'd actually, my team had some separate money that was involved. And um, once you know, when my family came into play, um, one thing that was nice was I knew that I could avoid all of the politics around funding in USA Judo. Understood. Understood. Gotcha. So I, I want to go back to your, this, this training camp here. How, how long were you there? I, I couldn't get a sense from your, your story, how long you were at this particular training. camp. It seemed at least two weeks, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. That would have been my guess. I was there for about, I was about six weeks. Uh, oh, six weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I spent, of that, I spent a, about half a week at Budo University as well. Um, and then I would get some workouts at the Kodokan on the weekends here and there. Um, typically, by the, by the weekend, I was so fried that um, the Kodokan isn't necessarily, there will be camps, and I'm sure there are practices you can go specifically to really get some hard training. But the Kodokan was kind of more of a relaxed, open mat app atmosphere when I went. So I was able to kind of go and just, you know, work out with some recreational guys and have kind of a more relaxed practice there as opposed to these two and a half to three hour long Randori sessions at Scuba. So I, I didn't spend a lot, I didn't practice a lot at the Kodokan, um, but I made a note to try, you know, it's the Mecca for Judo. Of so course. Stop by there. So, um, given the the Kodokans in Tokyo, what is what was your first impression when you visited Tokyo? It's New York City through a funhouse mirror. <laughs> um, that's kind of the way I think of it. Um, I I had a lot of fun walking around Tokyo. It's amazing how clean it is, um, and you know, part of that is because a lot of times if someone sees a bit of trash, and I witness this, someone, you know, if there's a piece of paper on the ground, someone will grab that, put that in their pocket, and then throw it away when they get home. Um, I was caught off guard by kind of the lack of trash barrels when I was there. It, that seems like a weird thing to have culture shock over. But, I mean, genuinely, I was, I'd be walking around with trash in my pocket. Where can I throw this out? Um, and public transportation is incredibly clean, which coming from Boston and spending time in New York city is a, that is a new experience. Uh, right. Um, so it, I would say, and actually DC right now, you know, you regularly read things about, you know, trains being not trains being on fire, but tracks being on fire. <laughs> so Tokyo is very different from that respect. So I'd say that's probably the closest I'd say to it. Um, food was always very good in Tokyo. Um, I actually, I, well, I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, north of Boston. My actual ability to navigate Boston itself is very limited. And I hadn't, after, because I spent almost every weekend in Tokyo, and I wasn't 
driving around in a car. So I actually got to the point where I knew some of those areas of Tokyo really, really well. Um, and years later, when I went back, um, there were some of the areas that I was still relatively comfortable with. So, interesting. Now, you said uh, you, you said in your story that you're a fan of uh, anime and manga. Are you are you and you talked about going to this this area of of Tokyo where they had a lot of, I guess, some some cosplayers and such. I mean, are you still a fan of that kind of stuff, or you've, has that kind of gone by the wayside? Oh no! Um, I was watching My Hero Academia this morning. Ah, <laughs> yeah, which is um, just random recommendation. That, that's a fun show. Um, but you know, I, I've always I've been a lifelong fan of anime and manga. Um, I you know it's something I grew up with uh, watching, and I, I've re- always really enjoyed it. So that was kind of a happy bonus. Um, but Aki Harbor is very cool. Um, you walk in, and there are co- these you know, these manga and um, anime shops that are, you know, six stories tall. So it's a really cool space. Are you uh, familiar with Blue Exodus manga? Because my son likes that a lot. I've heard of it. I haven't, I haven't read it myself. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you were in Tokyo on the weekends, you stated that you went to the Kodokan and you talked a little bit about that. Tell me, Tell me what your initial impressions were of the Kodokan and, and how many weekends did you spend there and how much time did you spend there? I think in six weeks, I stopped by there maybe two or three times. Um, it wasn't – the practices that I attended were not super difficult. As I mentioned, it was kind of more of a, like, just get on the mat and move around a little bit and, you know, re- be relatively chill. Um it kind of this open mat format where a lot of recreational players would stop by. I have been there before where there was a series where there were very serious elite level players practicing. Um, but that wasn't really what I came what I would run into the first time I was there. Um, the first time I was there was kind of like just starstruck. It's like, Oh, you know, here's the Kodokan. Here's this place that, you know, you hear about in judo all the time. Um, you know, it was very formal. Um, when I was there, you know, only white geese were on the mat. Um, very, very traditional. Um, I don't know if they had changed the rules yet or if the rules have ever been changed, but um, for a long time, women were not allowed to be on the same mat as men. And I know Rusty Kanagogi was one of the only people who was ever, um, the, for your listeners who have not, um, who are not familiar with her, she passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. But she was a very key person in the development of women's judo. Um, but Rusty Kanagoge, I believe, is one of the only women who, are, who was allowed to practice with the men. Um, and I, my understanding is that uh, that has loosened over time. But um, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, not too long ago, the, 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 the All Japan Judo Federation got rid of the, the, the Yoshi belt. Um, so women no longer have to wear that that black belt with the white stripe. So I, I think things are changing in that regard. That's good. Um, and then also, there's actually a really cool museum that the Kodokan has um, that I really like. It has stuff, you know, it has famous people's old geese and has a lot of stuff on the creation of the history and the creation of the Kodokan. Um, you can actually still visit the site where the original Kodokan was, the temple that, um, for those who have read on the history of the Kodokan, um, it initially started off in the basement of this temple. And that temple is still up, and it's about an hour outside of Tokyo. 
Oh, but that's still ne- next time I go, that's something I'm going to make a note to actually see because the Kodokan where it is now, that's not where it's always been. Right, right. Now, with your story, I saw a lot of chapters that have yet to be written in different parts of your story. So I saw chapter headings talking about Scotland and Belize, and uh, I believe that I saw Athens as well and, and Beijing. What, um, what were those trips about, and, and were, were they all judo-related, or were some related to your, what you do for your work professionally? I was really curious about that. So we'll go city by city. Um, oh, Belize, sure. was, Belize was not judo at all. Um, Belize was – so I, my undergraduate degree is in um, ecology and environmental biology. And I went – actually, at the time, I wasn't able to train really other than lifting because I had blown out my shoulder. Um, I was recovering from that injury. So I was down there doing field work. And as part of a course I took um, – we worked with some community conservation efforts. Uh, we kind of went around the country, saw different and aspects of that. We actually got a chance to the second largest coral reef in the world is off the coast of Belize. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a little off topic, but Belize itself is a fascinating country. Um, a lot of interesting things going on there. Right, so I encourage people, if they're, you know, if they're looking to spend some, go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. Um, it's worth your time. Hmm. But Scotland was judo related. Um, Scotland was three weeks. I had gone there because I had gone there because I was very interested in a judo player named Ewan Burden. Um, Ewan had a similar build to the way, to what I had, and he was consistently beating people that I knew that if I was going to make an Olympic team, um, I had to be able to beat. And stylistically. One, stylistically, he was similar to the way I fought. Um, I was, my classical judo base is very much a Harai, Osoto, tall person, lanky, a judo game. And, you know, Harai and Harai Makikomi being my Tokiwaza, Ewan was pretty much the premier player for that style at middleweight. I've, most of my career was spent at 81 kilograms, and he was um, a multi-time world medalist in that weight class. Um. He also just had a very interesting game, I would say. Um, I, I'm someone who I really enjoy looking at, you know, there are a lot of really great traditional judo players. I really enjoy looking at people who try to do something very, very different. My two favorite players at the time were Flavio Canto and Ewan Burton during that quad because um, they had such unique games, and I really tried to emulate those games. And in the case of Ewan, I'd actually sat down and spent a lot of time researching him and pulling ideas from what I saw him doing so i wanted to spend some time actually getting my hands on him um i'll note that it was also i was there like a month before the world championships and in all fairness um if i was him i probably would have been a little suspect that you know travis stevens training partner shows up you know a month before the world (laughs) championships you know they're purely for training um so you know, that that was a little funny, but actually, I really like the Judo Scotland crew. Um, I still talk, every once in a while, I'll still talk with a guy named Pat Dawson who's out there. Um, and I w- when I was there, I was with Allison Clifford and Marty Molloy. Um, and actually, one of the athletes who was there, she um, she taught Judo classes to um, at a private school in the area. And she knew, she told us a story, she knew that one of her students was J.K. Rowling's son. Oh, 
but they didn't know who it was because the kids had a different last name, the JK Rowling. And one day, you know, I think it'd been Easter weekend or something. They asked like, Oh, what'd you do over the long weekend? And one of the little kids goes, I met Mr. Obama and we had Buffalo burgers. So <laughs> they, they figure out that was probably him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was a lot of fun. I wrote, I was in Edinburgh, Scotland for that. Um, I actually did not go to Athens or Beijing. That is a reference to the, the 2004 and 2008 Olympics. And the Beijing Olympics, that was when Rhonda went to, um, that was the first Olympics I tried to make. Um, I did not make the trials, but I had, I still had some encouraging matches where I had very close matches against the people who were in the trials. Um, you know, matches I lost by like the skin of my teeth. Um, you know, I had a great match at New York Open with Andrew Hung, who was the number four seed. Um, I had, you know, some decent showings at some other guys. Um, and, and, but Athens was when Jimmy went and I was like 15 and I remember being up and I'll talk more about it when we write the chapter, but watching Jimmy go for the Olympics was what made, what made me want to go for the Olympics. Having someone like that in front of you you know, making those efforts, it doesn't become a far off thing anymore. It becomes this thing that seems tangible. And, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, realism kind of goes out the window to an extent when you're trying for these things. And it was just such an inspirational thing to see him. And Rhonda was there for training for Athens. And um, there's a great judo player, Alex Otiano, who he's one of, um, he actually just did a lot of, spent a lot of time um, teaching me when I was younger. Um, and it was just, I don't know how to describe it. It was just something that, you know, you see people going and competing and it's something very special to witness firsthand. And I just kind of got swept up in that. And I decided that after watching Jimmy take bronze that I wanted to go to the Olympics, that that was something I really wanted to do and dedicate my time to. So uh, let me, let's talk a little bit about that. So as a 15-year-old impressionable young man, you see Jimmy Pedro going for the Olympics and you, and you think to yourself, wow, this is, this is incredible. Somebody that I know is actually competing at the highest levels for all of that. But then I would have to think at some point along the way, you see the reality of trying to make an Olympic team. And it, for a lot of people, it could be overwhelming in terms of, of – uh, the time involved in terms of the financial investment, in terms of the chances of, of actually doing that it, in spite of all of that, what, what still made you want to pursue that despite seeing this mountain, this basically the Mount Everest of tasks almost to, to pursue this. What was your motivation at that point when you started seeing the realization of what this meant? So I didn't start to actually real notice any of that until the London quad um you know I, I take that back there was one other incident that that came to mind um but and I, and I'm gonna leave that I'm gonna leave for the blog but um part of what helped is as I mentioned I had hyper focused on judo and as a result in my mind at that for many many years it whatever those obstacles were didn't matter. I just wanted to be on a mat. I just wanted to train. I just wanted to train hard. Um, and to the point where actually 
I had a very difficult time emotionally retiring um, and kind of getting getting over that space where that wasn't what I was doing anymore. And that's very common for a lot of people who are on the Olympic track or who are Olympic hopefuls, regardless of how close or far they um, they were to actually making the team. In my case, I was relatively far from it. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where you just, it's those things become a norm. Those difficulties are a norm, the community you're in. So, you know, every, you know, you're broke. Well, everyone around you is broke kind of deal. So I think that, I think there's kind of a high, a lot of people who are in that stream is kind of a high tolerance for the adversity that comes with trying to go down that path. Um, I did during the London quad begin to, as I hit what was basically my athletic ceiling. Um, and that actually relates back. To, I actually think that's firmly related back to the autism spectrum stuff. Um, I hit a point where as much progress as I had made and as athletics as I was compared to the average individual, you know, there was stuff in high level judo. I just couldn't execute or I just couldn't execute to the same ability as someone in like Travis or Flavio Canto or any of those great judo players or Kayla or Nick DiPapolo. Um, and actually I spent, I spent a lot of time particularly training with, you know, the core group I trained with the London quad was um, Nick DiPapolo when he was still there, Travis, Kayla, Bobby Lee, um, a lot of these really excellent judo players who could really throw and do some amazing stuff physically. Um, Aaron Kunihiro, Hana, um, and Dan McCormick and all these other people. And I remember sitting there and it was actually after my part in the quad largely finished. I was just helping people train for London. I went to play a game of volleyball with some friends from college and, and I'm like dominating the game and oh, I'm not used to this. And I realized like, Oh yeah, normally I play these games and playing them with like Travis. Um, I'm playing right. them for athletes. And that was when I realized like, you know what? I, there was a ceiling for me. Um, I do largely think it's because of issues around gross motor control. Um, Cause there were just movements I couldn't, I, I could perform them against some random Joe Schmo athlete. I couldn't do them to an international A-level player. Um, so talk, talk a little bit about that. Cause you're, you're, you're talking about, I, I think everybody at some point in their life, whether they are, uh, whether talking about professionally or academically or or athletically, people, I, I think a lot of people come to the to a realization that you know there are just certain things that I'm not able to achieve in this particular field or or at the academic study or athletic endeavor or such. When I look at you and I've seen some of your your judo film, I I think you're excellent. But Thank you. what was it that you, you get to a point and you know, I'm not going to break through this ceiling. What, what was it? it? Was it more, was it just the gross motor things? Because I, I would have to think that you could develop a game that, that capitalizes on your strengths. So what was it specifically in terms of a ceiling that you felt that you couldn't achieve where people like like Travis or Kayla or uh, Nick Del Popolo were able to achieve. Um, so, just to, I'll quickly run down my strengths. Um, I was a very very good grip fighter. Um, that allowed me. I 
I could go against, I can confidently say that, you know, 2010, 2011, Chris Round, you know, right on right, could group fight with anybody in the world. Um, I had grown up around that. That was, I mentioned Hiraya Goshi being my Tokyo Waza. Grip fighting really was my Tokyo Waza. Um, my ability to actually throw people at that level was very, was, I could do it, but it was very difficult. And most of the time I'd find myself against people who were really, really good. It would either be a situation where I had to grind a match out on a small score or a penalty unless I got them on the ground, which was where, another area where I was very strong and I've always been very strong. Um, but my ability to actually turn somebody over for a throw um, who was at that level um, just wasn't there. Um, and there was a, to an extent, too, um, there was a strength factor. And this was, and this is where, like I mentioned, there being athletic ceiling. This was where I think if I had been a bit more disciplined with my strength training growing up, um, I would have really benefited and would have been. I wouldn't. I still don't think I would have made the Olympic team, but I think my results would have been a bit better. Um, but really, the point was I actually ran into. I started running into players who were ambidextrous, and it's very rare for a player to be very good who's ambidextrous. Um, a lot of high-level players, will, they'll have attacks that are both sides. But actually being a true ambidextrous player, I can count on one hand the number of people who I knew who did that at a world level. Juan Healy was an example of someone who could do that. Juan Healy, for those who don't remember him, he was a very, very good player from South Korea. He won the world championships in 03. He was a guy who beat Jimmy in the um, third round of Athens. And I actually, my brain would just like malfunction when I would handle those players. So I was used to very disciplined judo players. And I realized then once some of the people I fought realized that if they kept throwing different looks at me, I would have trouble. Um, I would have trouble keeping track. Like, so it was just, there were, I started running to stuff that people could do that. I just kind of couldn't keep up with. Um, and that's not to say I couldn't keep up with to a large extent, a lot of very good judo players, but I got to the point where as a very good practice partner, I was just not in competition able to overcome some of those things. Thanks. I wish I had a better answer for that. No, that that's great. I, it, it is, it's a very good answer. It did, it did lend itself to the kind of detail that I was, uh, I was curious about how, how did you cope with that? Cause I, like I alluded to before, even I, even in my own professional career and other things, which is, uh, I, I've been in those type of situations where you look at yourself, you you have to come. It's almost like one would call it a, a come to Jesus moment or something like that, where you realize, look, this is where I'm at. And if I if I'm going to find, you know, more success, I'm going to have to do something completely different. Like, how was that moment for you when you got to that point and you said to yourself, you know, this is my ceiling? it's one of the most horrible feelings you can ever have. Right. Um, it is. Um, and, and it is something I would discuss a little bit in the book. I've actually written that chap. Um, over the last month, um, I haven't been posting as much and that's largely because I've been writing some of those chapters and it's therapeutic to write those chapters. Um, but I don't want, I don't want them to come out before they should come out. And I'll also note that they're just hard to write. Um, you know, anyone, you know, everyone as they, 
um, as they age will have, you know, everyone has their own battle they're fighting, but I'd say it took me about four years um, before I was able to kindly put that behind me. Um, and it's interesting because you have this rational part of your brain that goes, you know what, Chris, you weren't this major super athlete. You, you really, for what you had, the tools you had did some amazing, amazing work and you got all these really cool opportunities. And I, and I really love all of that, but there's always going to be a part of you. It's like, well, maybe if I just did something a little different or something down that line, or the thing that I carried for a long time was, you know, well, I'm 22 or 20, well, I'm 24, 25. Why am I in grad school and not competing right now? This is, you know, the prime period of my time in competition. Um, and it, it should also be noted, I actually had a major, major shoulder injury. Um, I had four screws put in my shoulder. And then I actually, at the world trials in 2011, I had a screw snap. Um, and then I had to have another surgery. And then actually the thing that finally like ended my athletic career in judo was I had come back a little bit, um, Last year, I was competing again. I actually got back on the roster. Um, and it wasn't for the intention of trying to go for the Olympics again, but I had a couple tournaments that were kind of white whales for me mm-hmm. that I wanted to go and get another shot at uh, before I called it quits. Um, and I blew my shoulder out again. And th- so at this point, it's like, all right, three surgeries and I'm done. But it's, I will say this, um, this is a very unpopular opinion. But it's something that if there are younger listeners who are thinking about trying to make the Olympics, understand that part of the struggle is not just trying to make the team and everything after that, everything with that. Part of, and this part of it that will hit hard is whether you make it or not. And actually, Roddy Ferguson and Taraji Williams-Murray have talked a lot about this. Um, they both went to the Olympics. Of course, um, it's kind of like a post-Olympic depression you go through. Um, and I know I went through it. Um, I went through it pretty badly once I realized I wasn't making the team. And then I went through periods where intermittently I was kind of struggling with this idea that I wasn't going to ever do that. Um, and the thing that there were two things that kind of like popped in that finally allowed me to shake it. One was actually writing this. Um, it became very therapeutic to work on this project because I was able to get feelings I had out on it out um, and out in a way where I felt like it was very constructive. Um, and then the other was my best, my best friend. Um, he's also a judo player. He was more of a local level guy. Um, he's at, he actually is better than me in Brazilian jitsu now, which is like, ah, oh, frustrating. Um, <laughs> but if anyone's ever in Philly, you get a chance to go on the mat with Alex Ziola. Alex is the man. He's a great guy. Um, but he was, he relayed the story to me that he was familiar with, um, where this older guy, he had, you know, he had a nice car, had a really nice career and he was, and, you know, competent Brazilian jiu-jitsu player. And he was on the mat with some guys who were training full time and took him out to lunch, took the guys out to lunch. Said, you know, you know, I really wish I could be training full time and doing all of that. And they looked at him and said, well, we really wish we had money to go out to lunch on a regular basis. So, in that story, I was like, no, this kind of a grass is always greener aspect. And I became very happy with the decisions I made after, um, after I tried to go to the Olympics. Um, if I had tried to stick around for another quad one, that would have been bad for my health, frankly. Um, you know, my, I, my body is wrecked. Um, 
and two, I, I wouldn't have met, uh, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have gone really enjoyed the time I did going to grad school. I wouldn't be in DC now. And I, I, I was able to come very much at peace with those decisions I made. And a lot of that, by the way, just a plug for Radhi, um, one of the things Radhi was pushing was that I developed some kind of post-Olympic plan mm-hmm. uh, where I knew like where I was going to go. And Jimmy had encouraged me all through the effort to try to go to college um, while I was trying to make the Olympic team, even if I didn't finish during that quad to at least get credits out of the way and at least like, make an effort. So I actually, you know, I got my bachelor's done um, during the quad, which you know, it was difficult to do, you know, it's hard to train full time and do that, but I was very happy I did when, you know, whereas if I had taken four years off from school altogether and that kind of, I wouldn't say it was a, it would have been a wasted four years, but I wouldn't have made as much progress in terms of life um, that, as I would have liked. Now, how hard was it for you to talk a little bit about balancing your studies and trying to become an Olympic athlete. Cause I, I gotta, I mean, given that what you are doing in the, the academic accomplishments that you've had, it, it, I have to believe it was far more than just taking, you, you know, 12 credits a semester. I, I would think anyway. So it took me about two years to kind of work that one out. Um, I actually had to train. I transferred to schools about halfway through my bachelor's because um, my freshman year was just kind of a disaster school wise. <laughs> Um, my freshman year was leading up, that led up to the 2008 Olympic trial. So that was really where I was focused. Um, and then I actually, I remember in the summer of 2010, I'll talk about this a little bit in the book, but you know, I was sitting around and a friend of mine recommended big bang theory and I was still, you know, taking classes and stuff like that and say what you will about that show. But I was watching, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm good at science. I forgot about this. (laughs) So I had already, you know, made the decision to transfer schools. Um, and it kind of reminded me like, oh yeah, you know, before I was ever good at judo, I was really good at science and, you know, stuff like biology, which I was majoring at the time. And it kind of reinvigorated me on that front. Um, what did help was once when I actually got hurt, the timing worked out really well. So I lost, um, I, I'd say I lost about, six months to shoulder injuries during that quad. And they were both right before the, or the fall semester of my junior and senior years. So I was able to get a lot of work done during that time. But I mentioned that I actually talked about this on um, the take it on easy podcast. Alex Friedman used to do, and that is trying to balance two like really all encompassing things like that, like going to school full time and trying to go to the Olympics full time and all of that. A lot of it's, frankly, just being very disciplined and recognizing that, all right, you've got these two really high level important goals and it can be done, but you have to recognize like, okay, I guess I'm not going out for a drink Friday night. I guess, you know, instead of spending time with family or friends, I'm going to study. Um, and it's, College athletes have talked a lot about this, um, about a lot of the difficulty in terms of time. There's a lot, a lot of lost sleep that gets involved. Um, I would recommend that anybody who is trying to make an Olympic team, um, that they work on school on the side, whether that's online or something like that. Because there's also one other advantage. There's one advantage that gave me, which was if one thing was really hard and drive, and like I was getting kind of depressed from one thing, the other thing would bolster it. Like, you know, I might have a bad tournament, but then get an A on a test and feel, you know, they kind of cancel each other out a little bit. Um, 
so it, you know, you'll always, the thing you'll dread will always be the hardest thing on the menu. And if you've got a few difficult things you're working on, then you can kind of, that will kind of shift around a little bit. So one thing doesn't become so much of a drag, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, definitely. So while you're doing your studies, you're trying to earn uh, a place on the Olympic team. Can, we haven't gotten to this yet, but it's my understanding years ago, uh, I, I think prior to 2010, to make an Olympic team, all you had to do was, well, I shouldn't put it in those terms, but you had to win your national tournament in your weight division and you could go to the Olympics. I, I, I think it was that way, if I'm not mistaken, but I know so, it, go ahead. The way it worked was there was Olympic trials um, for many, many years, the exception being 2000. Um, and what happened was a weight class would qualify. So Americans would go to Pan Ams and Pan Am games and a couple other qualifying tournaments. Um, and the weight cl- you'd have to have your weight class ranked for men, I think it was like the top eight in the Pan Am region or top six. Um, with the, and in 2008, there was an exception made that if somebody, a country medaled at Worlds, they were removed from that list. So, for example, I think 100 kilograms for the U.S., one of the reasons why he was able to qualify, if I remember correctly, was that I think both Brazil and Cuba uh, medaled at the 2007 World Championships. Jao uh, Schuttler and... Um, I don't, I think his name is Despain. I can't remember the hundred kilo for Cuba. And I might be wrong on that. I don't have you go inside in front of me right now. Um, but what ended up happening and what made London and what actually in a way it was kind of helpful because when I started to realize like I'm, I'd hit a ceiling and I was able to go back and focus on school, I think it happened a little earlier than it would have otherwise. Um, you had to be top 24 in the world. So really you had to make, you had to be making world by 2010, you had to have made a world team to have a shot in right. 2011 um, to have a shot. You would have to make to come from nowhere. That's you're not meddling Germany. You're not meddling Paris or any of those big tournaments. You would have to make the 2011 world team and then pull off a medal, pull off a top seven finish. Um, and of course, Travis was such a badass that, you know, he was meddling in Germany, meddling in Paris and he had a good show. He had a really good showing at the 2010 worlds and, um, I don't remember how he did in 2011. He won a couple matches, but, you know, he really had that on lock. Um, there was a trials, though, and that was because of really what was the premier rivalry during that quad, which was between Michael Eldred and Nick Del Popolo. And people aren't really as familiar with Eldred outside of kind of the elite community. Michael was one of the nicest people you would ever meet. He, um, he was one of my favorite training partners, Um and, you know, and I was very close to Nick Del Popolo as well. And Michael was just kind of talking about athletic ability. Man, that guy was kind of like a freak of nature. Um, he just never seemed to be tired. <laughs> you, you go with him, you know, you train with him for, you know, five to ten minute rounds. And, you know, he'd feel just as tough in the first minute as he did in the last minute, which was impressive. Um, but so there was a trials for that weight class because both Nick and Michael were top 20 in the world. Um, and the United States has just always been very strong at 73 kilos. You know, when you think about it, um, you know, Jimmy had that weight class on lock for many, many years before Jimmy, it was Mike Swain. And then after Jimmy Ryan Reeser had it for a quad. Um, and then, you know, Nick, Nick, despite all the stuff that went down with him after London, you know, Nick still plays top seven in London. 
um, and you know, then plays top seven again in Rio. So uh, that was a long-winded answer, but basically that was how it worked. So were you able to acquire international points? What, so in fact, what tournaments did you compete in outside of the United States in order to try and uh, achieve your, your Olympic uh, dream? Um, I was stuck at the level where I couldn't, I needed to get my US, I needed to get my B level. Um, so I did not. So as I mentioned, I was top 10 in the US. I was, you know, usually like seven or eight. Um, I did not get that. I did not get on the international roster. Um, which gives an idea of how far off I was. Um, but as I said, you're around people who are on there, so you kind of feel like, you know, just things go your way, you'll make it. Um, I competed like Rendezvous when that was still a thing. I competed at US Open several times. Um, I competed at, um, I did basically the North American tour. So Okay, competed, gotcha. Yeah, Benio Juarez when that was still a thing. Um, I hit a lot of- to Canada at all? What's up? Did you go to Canada at all? Oh yeah, well the Rendezvous tournament um, was a big one up until 2010. Um, I trained a lot at the Shidokan. Um, I would go there every every year for about a week or two, um, and train with Nicholas Gill and train with the Canadian team. Uh, we actually had good relationships with the Canadian team. Um, last time I was in Japan, I got to visit my friend Fumi, who he was like the number three guy, 73 kilos and 81s on and off for a long time. Um, you know, we it was a lot. Of, I had a lot of fun going to Canada. That was my first international training camp was in 06. That's actually where I met Marty and Travis and a lot of the guys who, uh, guys and gals who went on to make London. Um, so I, I actually, yeah, that's a really cool club. So you've mentioned in your book and, and throughout this, this, um, this interview here, You've brought up Kayla, Travis, uh, Marty Malloy, Nick Del Popolo, and and even in your you've got a chapter that you're going to set aside for for Ronda. Well, I'm going to assume you're talking about Ronda Rousey. How um how are your relationships with those people? I, I would venture to guess that these are friends of yours and um, longtime training partners. That I, I I'm certain they all trained uh, with Jimmy Pedro uh, along with yourself during this period of time. How were they as, as, as friends, and, and do you still maintain those relationships today? Some of them. Um, and I'm sorry, I hope I'm not coming across as name-dropping at all. I apologize. No, 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 you're not. You're not at all. You're not at all. I mean, these are, this, these are people that, that shaped uh, your experiences. So um, Marty's not – I've always thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with Marty. Um, we're not that close, mostly because she's out on the West coast. Um, but she was someone I always enjoyed being around. And actually there's a funny story. Um, when she took bronze, I, I was actually, I got to go to London to watch and I walk out of the, um, out of the arena just to quickly, you know, throw up on Facebook that, Hey, you know, Marty took bronze. I was putting up updates every, um, after every match for everyone, um, back home. Um, cause I had friends and family members who were all following everything. And Marty's dad, who I had never met before, uh, but apparently knew who I was, walks up to me, hands me like 40 pounds and goes, Chris, quick, buy us beers. <laughs> All right, so, so I sat there and I ended up getting day drunk with Marty's dad right after she took bronze. Um, and But it was fun. Marty's dad's a cool guy. I, I enjoyed talking with him. Um, I don't really talk to Travis that much. Um, you know, I... Uh, I just don't really talk to him that much. Um, occasionally we'll chat a little bit, but um, 
Kale was in my wedding party, actually. She was um, she was a groomswoman in my wedding party. And I wrote, you may have seen it. Um, it was actually meant to be like my um, my gift, my wedding party gift to her. Um, I wrote alongside Roddy Ferguson a scouting report for for the Rio games. Um, and I can talk about that more if you'd like. Like, that was kind of a fun and that was kind of a fun experience. Was it the same uh, stuff you put up on Reddit? Because I thought that stuff was fantastic. Yes, that was. Okay, I, I uh, that was great. That I, I that I I was reading everything that you put up there at the time, and you did such a phenomenal job. I I, I thought uh, it would have been great maybe if you were a part time correspondent for the IJF. I, I just thought it was great. Uh, I'll tell you, that would be a dream job. Uh, I would really love that. Um, you know, I'll, I will say that because I knew I couldn't athletically perform the same level as a lot of people I was fighting, I spent a lot of time just studying judo and studying how people fought and how, um, and I got to the point where, you know, people talk about judo being like chess. And I got to the point where I under, I can watch a match and, and understand a lot of the underlying systems are being used pretty well. Um, so that was very helpful in doing the scouting report for Kayla, though. I will note the Hungarian, she thought that she pinned that girl, that woman was really hard to scout. She was super difficult <laughs> um, for several reasons. Mainly I discussed how, um, you know, I had a lot of trouble with ambidextrous players she was all over the place. Her attacks just felt randomized. She was, and she gave Kayla fits. So when Kayla pinned her, I was very, very happy. Um, but moving through, um, Kyle Vashfield and I know each other for a long time. We've been longtime friends. Um, Kyle and I trained together at Jason Morris's place a lot. Um, I used to train at Jason's in the summer when I was a teenager. Same with Nick Del Popolo. Um, Nick was a teammate for a time period before um, there was a separation. Um, and so he came to Pedro's for about three years. Sure. Um, and he and I were very close. I also wrote a scouting report for him. I did not publish that though, because, um, Nick, I knew Nick was still going to be competing. So I didn't want to risk putting something up that, you know, maybe the guy, maybe the coaching staff from Brazil suddenly finds. Um, so I, I have, when Nick retires, I may put that up on Reddit just because I, it might be of interest. Sure. Um, but so that was, yeah, Marty, hey, Nick, Travis, Kayla, uh, Kyle. Then you, you know, little, you, did you know Ronda Rousey? Did you train with her? I would think that you trained with her up at uh, Jimmy Pedro's, correct? Yes. Actually, okay. um, I, I talk with her. I actually still talk with her mom on occasion. Um, her mom and I have been friendly. We got to, I met her online originally through the old judo info site, judo forum. Um, and Rhonda. So for Athens, I was one of Rhonda's main training partners. Cause I fought, she fought 63 kilos back then. I fought 66 kilos um, when I was that age, which, you know, we won't say how many kilos ago that was. Um, <laughs> but um, I knew Rhonda relatively well for that in Beijing. Um, and actually, and she talks about it in her, there are a few, there are a few sections where her book um, and mine kind of intersect. Like to, um, there were a couple of events, but actually funny enough, um, you know, if you've read her book, which I recommend, it's very good. Um, if you read about when she talks about leaving Japan, um, 
I actually went to Japan about a month after that went down. And I remember being told, like, make sure you're on your best behavior. Right. People were, people were still sore about that. Um, so I, I don't want to talk more about that. But um, Understood. That's, that's not a problem. But no. Rhonda. Go ahead. Um, Rhonda's cool. Um, I think her persona, the way I know her and her persona and UFC are two different things. Um, I remember this person who would be trading Pokemon with my little brother. Um, and was someone who had been a good friend to me um, during the Beijing Quad. Um, she, uh, her mom's funny. Her mom's, you know, of course, the first American world champion and is, you know, this amazing academic. I remember during my first semester of grad school, I put up online, I said, grad school's hard. Can I just go back to being a judo bum? And the first Facebook comment, not two minutes later, was her mom saying, no, go study. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now, a few moments ago, you were talking about um, creating scouting reports and such. I'm curious to hear your opinion on how do, you know, scrubs like myself, what's the difference between what scrubs like me see judo versus somebody who really is looking at judo at at your level? What, What do you see as a scout that people like me would not see? Does, so, does that question make sense? Yes, it does. Um, okay. So actually, I actually thought I had to think about this last year because I had a, I had a discussion with um, with an older, very experienced judo player about this. Um, so here's the difference: you see a throw, I see um, I see a series, a long series of decisions made that led to that throw. So when people complain about grip fighting, they don't, a lot of times people who I see complain the most about grip fighting don't know or don't see what's actually happening. Um, which is, it's, a, it's just a long series of strategic decisions. Roddy actually describes them as decision gates. Um, that's similar to how I see it. Um, I don't know. I basically, I see a decision tree that's going down, uh, that's going on. Um, versus a lot of people just see the big throw at the end or the, or the arm bar or choke at the end or the pin. Um, I can track, I'm tracking from the moment that we bow in, how distance is being covered, how much someone's willing to close the distance versus leave it open, um, where their hands are going initially. A lot of times, if you think about judo match as a philosophical argument, where someone's hands initially go to can be kind of thought of as the baseline assumptions that are being, you know, grip fighting is almost we're arguing over what or what is going to be the baseline framework for actually the, th- the conversation of the throw is maybe the way to think about it. It's debating like, okay, before we actually get to the point where we throw each other, where's the space we're going to combat that? Where on this battlefield of geese are we going to determine who's better at throwing the other person? Or whether or not we're even going to determine that. Um, a lot of times, and people will, it can be boring to watch, I'll admit, but a lot of very smart judo players will go ahead and recognize, you know, it's not the right time to throw now, or I need this match to, I need to, this person to burn out a little bit before I start my offense. Um, the most tactically interesting matches in my weight class at E1 kilograms in Beijing and London were actually Travis Stevens and Lee Bischoff. Because Ole Bischoff is a master at that. He was just fantastic. Um, really just, one, a great grip fighter, 
Um, Kayla Harrison actually described those matches as being one of the best examples of how disciplined grip fighting works. Um, but yeah, so I'd say a lot of times people get drawn to the big exciting thing and they don't notice all the little stuff that leads up to it. So what do you, are there metrics that track the success of a particular athlete or a particular match based on these decision points that you're talking about? So, so for example, let's say, well, if this athlete does this at this period of time during the course of a match, he is more likely to be successful at winning that match. Do you, do you, not, do you or do coaches keep track of those type of metrics at that level? I have those, but those are my secret sauce. <laughs> so, so I can't go too much into them. They Understood. Yeah, anyone who has a background, and in, 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 you don't even really need that much of one, um, but anyone who has a background in stats or metrics will configure them out pretty quickly, I'll know. But um, there's there are some things you can watch, um, and they're mostly based around active rates of um, rates of activity. Hey, but it depends too, because that's the thing. That's one of the things that's great about you doing this program. Why it can it can be intellectually interesting is just, some metrics are completely useless for, for some judo players. Attack rate, for example, is just like people would assume. Oh, yeah, well, attack rate will just measure. No, it's actually it's a garbage metric. Um, you know, you can have a player like a Jimmy Pedro who really what the fight is, what the fight that's happening with a Jimmy Pedro is positional. It's the activity rate around positioning hey, versus like the number of attacks. He might attack five times in a match, match um, five or six times when he was competing. Um, whereas I'm trying to think of an example on the other end of the spectrum. Whereas, um, you know, there are some players that walk out in every exchange is there's an attack of some kind. And it might not be a big, you know, risky attack, but it might be just catching a foot sweep or, um, just kind of a constant activity in that regard. Travis Stevens is closer to that, where Travis is a very grip-and-go type of judo player. Um, I'm sticking to American examples to um, for this, just because I assume most of your crowd, most of your listeners are American. But About half, actually, believe it or not. Oh, half? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, another example of a player, well, a player who actually is not only an example of a great judo player, but an amazing athlete is um, Monster Isaya from, from Russia. And his attack rates would fluctuate uh, and would be so to the extent where like, that's not a useful metric for him. But there are some people who you'll watch and either they'll pick up attacks at the end of the match. Um, and actually slightly in defense of that metric, that metric can be useful for determining at what point do you have to be most on guard during a match. But that's as much as I can get into it. So, so you're, so you're holding back a bit from me and it's fine. I completely respect that. Are you looking to become a, a, a coach at an elite level at some point in your life? I would love to do that. You um, would. Okay. I, I really enjoy coaching. Um, I actually have a very, very big love of teaching. Um, I've taught judo um, on and off for about 11 years. Um, I started teaching at Jimmy's. Um, I taught at his school for about six or seven years. Um, I then went out to Indiana university and taught judo there. And now what I do is I do seminars, I do clinics. Um, and then I have a few, I have a few friends that I've spent some time with, um, individually. Hey, some guys who are working, who are fighting in MMA, who, um, 
who I've been advising them on judo for MMA. And then I have a friend who's competing right now. She's out of California, um, who I've spent a lot of time with. So this is something that you would like to do in the future. You, you talked, you touched on some of the metrics and your, your quote unquote secret sauce there. In terms of judo in the United States, how do you think this country can become stronger at judo on the international scene? I think two things have to happen. I think the way we structure senior domestic tournaments needs to change. Um, and this is a short, I won't even say the short term, but um, if you look at the core group for London and Rio, they had, in terms of people to compete against for 04 and 08, they had very, even though they weren't the top tier internationally, they had good competition to come up against as high level juniors. Um, you know, when you think about how deep, for example, 73 kilos was, which was the weight class Nick was fighting for Beijing, you had like 10 guys in that weight class who all could challenge for a slot. Kyle Vashfield, who went in for London, he missed Olympic trials, and there were nine people ahead of him who all had a shot at beating. At, you know, he had beaten a lot of the guys who were at that level. I kind of – I don't know if this is people moving to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I would understand. I have effectively done that too, but – Nationals is getting smaller every year, and I think there needs to be a recognition that, while yes, the focus has to be on international competition, um, in the short term, you still need to make sure there are bodies at nationals and you, and the bigger or, uh, um, national tournaments, um, because the next crop of people still needs even still needs that like tough C level player or um, who's just been around for a while to test and learn and fight against. Um, so there's that. I think judo needs to, um, he and I argue a lot on the internet, but I have to give him, I have to give him this point. Josh Resnick has brought up a point for years that there needs to be more outreach for building judo at the collegiate level um, beyond just San Jose state, um, Texas A&M and West point. And the largest drop-off we have for talented juniors is the transition from is transition from juniors to seniors. And going back and talking about some of the difficulties and adversities you have um, becoming an Olympic athlete, one of them is, you know, there's not that many options to go and do your college degree and train full-time. Um, it's hard. It's kind of hard to do. And it's the nice thing about places like San Jose or Texas A&M um, where and I'll note the San Jose of the three big um, schools, the only one that's actually prepped to put people on an Olympic team right now. I'm hoping that West Point, Texas A&M, eventually reach that too. And there's some good judo players there too. But um, you know, I think those are two like easy fixes—not easy fixes, but those are two like very quick answers. Um, in terms of larger, I mean, it's hard. It's a systemic problem. What I'll note and Jimmy's very good with is I, I would say there's a staff of, you could assemble a group of four or five elite coaches who could really work together to develop athletes. Um, I think it's a shame USA judo hasn't used uh, Roddy Ferguson more. Um, and I mean, I'm biased, you know, Dr. Ferguson's a friend of mine. Um, I think that there are a lot of resources that have kind of gone untapped but I don't know. It's hard. I think that, I mean, Jimmy talked about it in an interview a few years ago. 
there's a few people that come out of the American system every four years who, you know, they're kind of the outlier or um, who are really amazing. We got lucky in London and Rio where, you know, we had a huge crop of athletes who all came up and were very, very good. Um, you know, we were able to challenge for multiple medals and all of that. Um, but I mean, that's a, that's a dissertation level paper. <laughs> Not dissertation. Sure. That's a long, that's, that would require more time than what we have time for. So, so you, your, some of your training partners have been Kayla Harrison, Travis Stevens, you know, Marty, so a lot of these people who found success at the international level and medal that, you know, at the international level, it seems the one common thing is, is Jimmy Pedro or, or for most of them anyway, do you think that American judo needs a national identity? And I, and I asked this from the context of when you look at a Jack, I, I don't even have to know where a guy is from, and I could say, oh, that guy, he's a, he's a French judo player. Oh, that guy's definitely from Mongolia. Oh, that guy's Korean. That guy's uh, Japanese. And I don't, I don't have to look at their back patches to know where they're from because I can look at their style of judo and say, or Russian, for example. Those, those guys, you know, they have a style of judo. Do you think the United States needs their own identifiable, uh, identifiable style of judo? We actually have it. We do. Okay. Um, it's actually, it's, it's not something, there's so much diversity. It should be, there's a lot of diversity actually within judo in the United States. Um, like you have a very, you have a lot of players that are very heavily influenced by Cuban judo in Florida. Um, Angelica Delgado is kind of the go-to example for that. You have um, players, the strong, strong Japanese style base, like Mitzel Popolo and Colton Brown. Um, you have this kind of grindy, um, you have this very positional strategy that can happen um, that is amplified by Kayla Harrison and Amari Malloy. But almost all of these people, whether they spent time, significant time with them directly or just from being around, end up picking up a lot of the gripping systems that came out of um, original that came out of the Pedro family. Um, and the Cohen family played a big role in that too, to make sure credit um, credit is given. Um, I think. I think the way Jimmy described it was, you know, they had started to come up with something then big Jim learned some stuff there and was able to develop his own system. And the system that came out of the Pedro's was, that's what won Kayla. That was one of the things that won Kayla a gold medal um, and helped her win a gold medal in Rio. I actually tell people um, who are, I tell people in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu who, you know, after they've learned some of the basics of grip fighting and judo too, if they want to watch really good precise script fighting is watch Kayla in 2012 and it's this very disciplined system that was that was very very effective um Kayla and Rio was still obviously amazing um but due to the rule set um there were some other things she threw in her game actually her game evolved that was one of the I wrote her scouting report that was actually kind of a shocker. Not that, you know, you expect people to evolve, but she was doing a lot of really cool things going into Rio that she wasn't doing in London. And it was just really fun to watch. Um, but I would say in terms of that national style, it's more of a, it's kind of more on the meta side where it's like, all right, you can expect Americans to normally show up with good grip fighting. Typically, even if it's not, even if it's not great mat work, some, the ability to be dangerous on the ground and to be in very good shape. 
Um, and that's the large, that's a lot of that's the influence of the Pedros. Um, though, I mean, obviously those are things that a lot of people are really big on, you know, Ed Liddy, as I understand it, I actually didn't spend much time with Ed Liddy, but, um, as I understand, he's a very good grip fighting coach. Um, you know, Roddy Ferguson is probably the best network coach in the country. Um, you know, you, you have a lot of people running around, but I would say those are the three things, grip fighting, mat work, and conditioning that um, all the Americans that have been meddling or placing top seven in the world all have. Travis is a little bit more of a unique um, gripping system. Um, his is very, he puts, your, he puts his left hand on your gi, whether you want it or not. <laughs> whether, you know, your opinion on that, uh, on the placement of his left hand is kind of um, irrelevant. Right. But, um, if, if you watch him particularly, if you, if you just watch him in general, um, you'll notice he tends to almost always lead with the left hand straight to the right lapel. Um, a little different right on left, but he actually has a cool system that was a bit more unique um, compared to some of the other people I mentioned. Now, you said that you currently do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and such. How, how has that transition been for you? Why are you doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu now? Is it related to the, the injuries? And what's your current jiu-jitsu rank? And how, do, do you teach? Do you, are you still just a student? Tell me a little bit about that. I taught a little bit when I was at IU. I'm a purple Brazilian jiu-jitsu under, um, under Dr. Roddy Ferguson. Um, I trained with Ryan Hall in Falls Church, Virginia. Um, I've, um, I've competed a bit. I fought worlds one time. I won a match, um, there. I, it's not, I am nowhere near as good at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as I am at Judo. Um, but I like it a lot. It's from an injury perspective, it's much softer. Um, you know, it's not, and that's not to say that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu isn't hard, I'll note, but it's just, by the time anyone can get to the places, to, um, the parts of my body that I'd be worried about breaking down. Um, I can tap well before something happens. Um, right. You know, the injury rate in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, I guarantee you, lower. I guarantee you the chance of concussion is much lower in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu than Judo. Uh, I've had a couple of concussions from Judo, um, as I'm sure most long-term Judo players have had. Um, it's just generally, I, I hate to say it, it's just a safer sport, um, which is, you know, it's ironic because you can attack, you know, there's some tournaments that allow you to, you know, hit a neck crank. There are some you know, you have way more opportunities to attack limbs in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but the actual act of falling in the in the training process for Judo is just really, really tough at the elite level. Um, and not that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu isn't tough, but like, but Judo practices are brutal, man. Like, um, you know, eight to ten minute rounds um, for two hours. You know, on the feet, that's exhausting. I'm in. I'm. I remember showing up to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practices out of shape by Judo standards and still being in shape by Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu standards um, just because, you know, the, require, the oxygen requirements for your blood were just that much higher um, in Judo. So, and I know I've mentioned, but just, I'm not trying to hate on people in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. There are plenty of people who are in far better shape than I ever was who compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, but it's just that, I will know that it's a safer sport. The demands in the body are not as high. And something that, like, I don't, I can safely show up to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practice and know I won't get hurt um, because of some, you know, some white belts, random error. Right. Um, whereas I'll show up to a Judo practice. I could go with a brown belt that just one day decides, hmm, I saw Yama Rashi on YouTube. <laughs> not Yama, uh, um, 
kind of saw me on YouTube. Why don't I try that? And there goes my knee. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I know. I yeah, believe me, I I know that can happen. I'm very, I'm very mindful. I you know because I'm. I'm I'm over 40 now so you know when I go to different clubs I'm very mindful of uh what other people are doing when they're doing rondori uh even if I'm if I'm doing rondori I take a look at the people around me see you know kind of what's going on and you know take mental notes cuz I can't I can't afford to get uh injured in that way anymore I, I don't heal as fast and you know I've got uh you know a lot of responsibilities as do you at these the, you know this point of your life now you know yeah, I mean, I know I'll probably have to be much more cautious about that when I get to my 40s as well. But I mean, it's I when I'm doing judo now, I'm actively conscious of where I am in relation to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even mat work in judo can be. It's funny because it's less dynamic, um, but sometimes I'll put people in stuff that they just have not. They don't necessarily. It's interesting because they don't. They're not stuck in the framework some of the frameworks that exist in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in terms of how things should be engaged. So sometimes you'll see some really creative stuff um, done by good Judo players and they're put in a weird position. Um, this is a, and that can be fun, but sometimes it's dangerous. I had somebody, I had their sleeve and I had a lapel and um, I was playing from open guard and their answer was they suddenly did a forward roll off the top of their head and I, you know, their heel goes straight in my nose. Yeah. I just wasn't expecting it. Um, that was a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I remember I was like, yeah, I'm not hurt from this, but that was uncomfortable. So. So with all of your experiences in judo, trying to make the Olympic cut, um, traveling around the world and such, this is a very, I know this is a very tough question to, but what is your biggest takeaway from your experiences and how have these experiences helped you both personally and professionally? So, um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I will say that traveling around has really, it changed my worldview a lot. Um, I don't want to get political, but there are some issues that I had one stance and it very much changed. Um, for example, I was stopped in Friston, in Tokyo and my personal view on that changed after having that experience. Um, and it kind of, my brain opened up a bit on that. Well, my mind, I had much more open mind on some things. Um, I kind of got, I really learned grit. Like I really, that was really what I got out of it. I, I noticed my wife, um, yesterday that, I kind of had this feeling all through grad school and I went through, I had a tough program. Um, I did two master's degrees at the same time. Um, I came out of the number one environmental policy program in the country and um, out at IU at the SPIA program. And I remember thinking to myself, like there was never a point where I doubted that I was going to graduate and get my master's. Like that was never what I was worried about. I'd be worried about like an individual class, but I kind of, or I had the same thing. I I took organic chemistry. Um, organic chemistry is one of you know, the most terrifying classes you can take in science just about um, if you walk around a college campus if you look for the people who look like zombies they're probably the ones taking organic um, and it's that's actually the infamous course that weeds people out for pre-med but I never there was never a thing because of my time in judo there was never a thing that I was like I can't do this um, it's just the case of 
putting my nose to the grindstone. And that was really kind of what I got out of it was this ability to go, I might not, you know, I might fail at something, but it's not because I didn't put in the effort. I didn't understand how to put in the effort. Um, and for the things that I really cared about since leaving judo, you know, I've accomplished them. Um, you know, I was able to get a good job out of grad school and you know, I had friends who were very nervous about that. I was, you know, I got through, I got through my master's program. Um, and there's some things that help along the way. And I had some lucky breaks and stuff like that, of course, but there was a line when I was wrestling, which was after you've wrestled everything else in life is easy. And well, no, that is somewhat bullshit because things are <laughs> very difficult, but it makes, it has allowed me to have a confidence in myself that um, I don't think I would have had otherwise. I, I was in an interview one time and um, the interview was, it was actually, I interned for the Clinton Foundation. Um, I helped do, I did a lot of work to help small developing islands um, build up their, build up their energy based sector uh, and do some cool stuff down that line. Um, places like the Seychelles and St. Um, St. Lucia and stuff like that. And they asked me and I said, you know, a lot of powerful people come through the Clinton foundation. Um, you know, how would you react to that? And I said, well, you know, I used to fight Olympic medalists in a combat sport where they could break my arm on a regular basis. So, I, you know, I'm relatively cool under pressure. And uh, the, the reaction was, Oh, well, I guess that, I guess that box is checked. Yeah. So, I would say that you really learn grit and grit and grappling. Um, I, my mind was opened up on some respects. And the biggest thing was, and with the understanding that there are different barriers for things um, and being able to recognize what those are, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but there is no reason if you have a dream to at least not look at it and at least not consider it and, and look at what could be done. Because you might not be able to reach that. But, and this is a point in the book, was I didn't reach the Olympics, but I got so much out of trying. Um, I got so much out of, you know, regardless of any, you know, mental baggage I had after the process or during it, that was what made me who I am now and the kind of person I am today. And I got so much from judo. So... I will note to anyone who in that, if someone has that particular dream to be very smart about it and make sure like they're working on other things that they have a plan afterwards and they, they know what they're doing, win, lose or draw after their time in the sport is done at that level or in their chosen sport. Or, and that's the same with a lot of fields, but yeah. So I, I would say that I know it's kind of long winded, but I would say no, that. That's fascinating. I, I I really appreciate you sharing that, and and I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast to share your story and to talk about your experiences. I've I've just been completely captivated by your story and and some of the answers to the questions that I've had. Um, do you have any um social media or well, certainly? I, I, well, I'm going to share the, the 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 link to your story. I've already did it on my Facebook. Uh, podcast page but i'm going to share the link to your story in the podcast notes is there any social media that you'd like to share with the listeners um where they could reach out to you or interact with you in some way 
Sure. Um, I have a Facebook page that I post a lot of my articles to, um, a lot of my writing. I'll note, by the way, um, some of my writing is political in nature because I work on environmental work. Um, so if people are very, you know, easily put off by that, it, I don't do it very often anymore, but just to be aware of it. Um, but I, but there's a website. I have a Facebook page, just Christopher Round. Um, you'll see a cool picture of mountains from Japan in the background on it. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter. I don't use Twitter that much, but I post all my writing there. What What's your Twitter address or handle or? Chris underscore round 88. All right. That's around like a ball. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining, joining the podcast. We'll, we'll definitely keep in touch. And I look forward to, to your uh, future writings on, on medium.com. Well, have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Chris, you have a great day too. Thank you. So there you have it. My interview with Chris Round. I was absolutely captivated by his story. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I hope you all go to his page on medium.com right now. I'm going to include the link in the show notes in the podcast description of this particular episode. So please go check it out. Go follow him. He just published his his latest chapter up on medium.com. Again, fascinating. He's a very good writer. I'm very impressed with his work. So please go support him. Please go check out his story and please follow him. Follow him on, on any social media platforms. He's got the Facebook, the, the, the Twitter. I don't think he's on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. You can follow me at La Vida Judoka. And if you do, You'll see pictures of my latest trip where you could see some dolphins or a dolphin. You'll see a dolphin and this little crab I found on the beach that, that I intimidated. So, so follow me on Instagram, which is La Vida Judoka. You can follow me on Twitter, which is at La Vida Judoka. If you want to email me, let me know your thoughts on this particular interview. You can do that at judochopsuishow at gmail.com. And you could also follow me on Facebook, which is judochopsuishow. I'd like to thank you all for checking out this episode of the podcast. I'll be sure to be back next week with all new fresh content. It's always fresh. It's never stale. But anyway, with that, I hope you have a great rest of the week. I hope you have a great weekend. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style.